Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Morning, morning, Springs Church. Good to see everyone out for the 11 o'clock service together. Oh, well, I got a quick announcement before we get into the word, but before I do that, it actually has to do with this gentleman sitting here to my left and your right. But before we welcome our guest speaker here this morning, I want to take a moment just to let everyone know that we have one of our missionaries in our house here. Renato, would you stand up just for a second? We just want to give you a round of applause. Renato and his beautiful wife, Michelle, who serve in Brazil and in North Dakota now, working out in the middle of very tough ground, especially in North Dakota. They thought Brazil was tough. Then they go to North Dakota and they say, man, this is rural and people need a touch from the Lord out here. So they're out there giving a breath of life to those churches and still serving in Brazil. We're so thankful for that. Amen. One more thing I just want to announce real quickly. Can, can you do me a favor? Those in our women's ministry, our leaders in our women's ministry, Sherry and, and my wife Beth and is Dana, she might be backstage. Would you stand just for a second? I know you guys had a wonderful Christmas tea yesterday. And I want to take a moment just to thank, thank you guys, especially Sherry. I know you work really hard every year to get that going. And my wife comes in and helps, but she says really the bulk of it has been on Sherry every year. And just such a blessing. I have heard reports all through the house of what a wonderful time it was yesterday. We just want to say thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Okay. Well, I'm very excited this morning. Uh, we have a guest speaker with us. Uh, this is Sam. Everyone say, hi, Sam. <laughs> Sam Williams is with us. Sam is very good friends with Elder Gary. And I had met Sam through Elder Gary about four years ago or so, somewhere around there. And I was just blessed through our conversation, our prayer time together. He has come and he has helped do conferences here. He has helped with our men's retreats here. He has spoken at this pulpit a few times. But let me just say what I am so blessed by when I spend time with Sam. And just so you know that you can open your heart freely this morning as we enter into the word together. Um, I, I said in the first service, I, I got saved under Pastor David Wilkerson's ministry at Times Square Church. And Pastor Dave used to say something that would perplex me almost every Sunday um, or, or frequently enough. He would say at altar calls all the time, he'd say, God is more interested in winning all of you than you winning all of the world. And I had a tough time with it for a long time because I kept on saying that can't be right. It just can't be right. I'd go home and I'd say, God, that can't be right. You, I, I want to evangelize. I want to be out. And, and, and that's all proper and it's right in its place. But over time, I began to realize that what Pastor Dave was actually saying was that God could do anything through your life if he has all of you. But it is his heart to have an intimacy with you so deep that he could do anything through your life. Amen. And what I love is it set me on this trajectory in my walk with the Lord where I wanted to know God. I, I wanted to know not just what he wanted me to do and not just the knowledge about who he is. I wanted to know the burdens of his heart. I, I wanted to pray in places where I could sense what breaks him, what, what he mourns over, what he joys over, what, what his desires are. I, I wanted to walk that closely with the Lord. And I remember it set me on this trajectory of this place with intimacy with God. 
And what I love about Sam is that when I met him and we spent time talking, he had the exact same heart. He was on the same mission. He was on the same trajectory. And I said, God, this is someone who, who really wants to know you. He doesn't want to just preach about you. He wants to carry your burden. He wants to carry your heart. He, he wants to commune with you in a way where he knows your thoughts. He knows, he knows what's going on. And he's in a place of union with you where he's being moved by your spirit. And he's being moved by your burden where you would have him be. I said, God, I'm so grateful. So this morning, church, as you're just prepared to listen to the word, I want to encourage you, you're going to hear the same heart that you hear every Sunday through the word this morning. And it's going to challenge you, it's going to provoke you, but most of all, it's going to put you in a place of saying, God, I want more of you, amen? Amen. So you can open your heart this morning. I'd encourage you as well, Sam has written an incredible book called Hearing God. If some of you are having a hard time learning God's voice for yourself, this book is phenomenal, especially for young people that are learning how to take their first steps into their walk with the Lord, their calling of God in their lives, and they want to hear God's voice. This is a great book to read through. You could get it on Amazon. Uh, go on there and avail yourself of it. It's a great blessing. But could we give Sam a round of applause this morning and thank him for being here with us? I'm going to hand it over to him. Let's turn to the Lord. Father, we surrender. Father, Father, Lord, King, Savior, we surrender. There's so many things we, so many lies we just hold on to. And right now, Father, we surrender them and say, Your way, not my way. Your thoughts, not my thoughts. Your wisdom, not my wisdom. Father, we surrender in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I am a PK, and in my little world, PK meant preacher's kid. My father was a pastor my whole life, and in those days, the churches that I grew up owned the houses that I lived in. So every house I lived in belonged to the church that my, past, my father was pastoring. And there was always an uneasy truce between the trustees of the church and my father about who would take care of broken things. So, you know, major things, like the hot water heater goes out, the trustees would pay for, but if the faucet leaked, my dad would take care of it. Well, in 1975, my last year in high school, I graduated in 75, just around the time we started getting indoor plumbing, and I, my, the, the church trustees felt like there were a lot of cement around the house, some of the sidewalks and part of the driveway right before the garage needed to be replaced. And that was their responsibility. And I remember my father so sternly at dinner talking to us kids, and he says, you will not carve your initials in that cement, draw a little smiley face in that cement, little tic-tac-toe boards in the cement. You will leave it alone. A week later, roughly, I heard a voice. Samuel Chester Williamson. Yeah, Chester, well, not my choice. It was my dad calling me, and I came running down the stairs, running outside, and there on the driveway, uh, my dad was peeling back some wet, um, what do you call it, burlap, and on the cement, underneath the wet burlap, were the letters S-W. And I looked at my dad and said, Dad, I didn't do it. It, it must have been Sarah. And my dad bellows out, Sarah Jane Williamson. And Sarah comes running down. 
And my dad pulls back the burlap and Sarah looks down. And with the voice and face of an angel, she told the lie, a whopper the size of Canada. She said, Sam did it. And I hadn't. Now, I had been raised in Detroit. You know, I was a senior in high school in Detroit. I had sort of lost some of my innocence a long time ago, but I still could not lie with that kind of beatific, holy beauty that she had on her face. <laughs> I would have flinched as I was lying. Ten years ago, 1985, by this point, my father's moved to another church, doubtless because of the way we defaced the church's property. And he moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And over Thanksgiving, all the kids were there. Everybody had come home for Thanksgiving. My sister, Sarah, that troll, <laughs> peeled back the scab off this wound that I had almost forgotten. And she said, Sam, it's time to admit the truth that you wrote SW in that wet cement. And I almost erupted like Mount St. Helens. But just before I did, my brother Andy gagged on his turkey. And he said, did I never tell you? He had been home from college for the weekend and just sort of on a mischievous spur of the moment, he wrote SW in the corner of the cement. Now, Understand it from my perspective and my sister Sarah's perspective. No other answer made sense but one answer. She did it. In her, in her case, he did it. She's a liar. I, I, we, I could not, my mother wouldn't have done it. My father certainly didn't do it. And even if I had remembered my brother Andy, Andy was like St. Francis. I mean, I had an older brother. I had St. Francis as an older brother. He just wouldn't have done this. No other answer made sense. Only one thing made sense in my entire life. My sister, the troll, lied. And that was a lie. I was completely taken in by the counterfeit. Now hold that thought a minute. Scripture teaches, and the Christian church has taught, that we have enemies of our spiritual health. We have serious, deadly enemies of our spiritual health. Scripture warns of our spiritual enemies, and the classic enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all Christians teach us, I was raised Presbyterian, and they even taught this. Even Presbyterians. And what we hear is Satan lies. Scripture says that's his native language is to lie. Satan lies and tempts us. The flesh, we all know what the flesh is. Paul says in Galatians, the desires of the flesh are obvious, but we know it. You know, the flesh sort of says now, food, now, sex, now, me, now, me, 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 me. I mean, we know what the flesh is. But the world is a little more insidious, it's more hidden. Because the world is a system that basically gets us to believe a truth without even questioning it. The, the world offers counterfeit answers and they just make sense. Just like when I thought of who had lied 
It was my Sarah. It was my Sarah. It was my sister. It just, it, no other answer made sense. Well, the, the world offers answers in our life that make sense. There's no other answer. In fact, they make sense so much that this is the enemy we fall prey to so often. Because we see the Satan, usually. And we sometimes give in, but we see him. We see the flesh, but the world hides itself so well. And these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they work together. They're just like an enemy country that has the different branches of the military. And listen, it's, look, at, I was raised, if you can believe it, a Presbyterian charismatic, sort of an oxymoron, but we were trained by Derek Prince, if you remember him, how to do spiritual warfare against Satan. We were trained, we learned this. But if your country knows how to defend against the Air Force, you have great anti-aircraft artillery, but you don't know how to protect yourself against the land troops, the army, the tanks, you are going to be overrun and decimated and destroyed, right? We need to battle all three enemies. And I think we Christians are much better at battling Satan and the flesh than we are the world. And do you know what? Scripture warns us about the world 100 times more than Scripture warns us about Satan or the flesh. Do you believe it? A hundred times more. The world is a system of counterfeit answers. So that's what the world is, the system of counterfeit answers. And the reason we don't recognize that God is warning us about the world a hundred times is because God uses all kinds of metaphors to describe the world. He doesn't just always say the world. He uses a variety of metaphors. So in Psalm 33, Scripture says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot save. Now, what Scripture is saying is there is a way that we will lean into the answers of the world. It just makes sense to us. If we have horses and chariots and we're attacked, we're going to trust the horses and chariots. And God says to us, do you remember Jericho? You didn't have any horses and chariots. How did you win? With a loud shout of praise. God says, do you remember Gideon? Remember he had thousands of troops. It was 22 or 25,000. I couldn't let him use those because he'd be trusting in the world. So God says, I can only let you do it 300 so that you know I am the one that brings salvation. That God lets us sometimes have horses and chariots, but he says, you can't trust in them. You have to trust in me as though you're marching around Jericho. And that's hard. Another metaphor God uses is Egypt. Listen to the heart of God in Isaiah. Listen, this is, this is the heart of a father crying out for his children. He says, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, our Father, who carry out a plan, but not my plan, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, who go down to Egypt without my direction to take refuge, where? In the protection of Pharaoh. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh shall turn to your shame. Now, this is just another metaphor. God uses, when, when we go down to Egypt or when we go to Babylon or when we turn to Assyria, these are metaphors from God for the world where we're turning to the world for alliances instead of turning to the Lord. But the Bible uses many more. It talks about 
uh, nations and peoples. God says you cannot trust the nations. God, when, when the children of Israel go to the promised land, they're supposed to kick out the nations because the nations are going to corrupt them. It talks about the peoples. It talks about uh, horses and chariots. It talks about human schemes and human plans. It talks about the idols of the people. You'll hear this all the time. God says you can't trust the idols of the people. That's the world. That's the system of the world. There are scores of metaphors in Scripture. We'll see some of them more. Scores of metaphors that say the world is an insidious enemy that disguises itself that we fall for. Not to mention all the passages in Scripture where God says, be ye holy. What does it mean to be holy? We're supposed to be separate from the world. And look, we don't want to be. We sort of like the world. God, that's why God has to keep saying, be ye holy. God is saying, look out for the world. It's staining us. A hundred times more, God warns us, against the world. And he warns us a hundred times more because we need to be warned because it keeps sneaking into our lives. When I went to university in 1975 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I belonged to a college ministry that did evangelism. I was part of the evangelism team. And we were able to bring people to the Lord. They made a profession of faith. We got prayed over them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And part of the process is we would ask people to repent for their sins. 75 years, well, this was 1975. Remember a long time ago. And every single man I spoke to when I said, listen, we also need to repent for our sins, every man who had been sleeping with his girlfriend would say, you know, one of the things I got to repent for is I've been sleeping with my girlfriend. I didn't have to tell him. He just knew it. He wasn't even a believer, and he knew it. 1975. In 2015, literally 40 years later, a local church in Ann Arbor who had a lot of young couples asked my wife and I if we would do premarital counseling with these Couples, because they just had so many couples getting married, their, their pastoral staff couldn't handle it. So Carl and my wife and I said, sure. And the pastor warned me, he says, now Sam, so many of these couples that are either members of the church or the regular attendees of the church, they've made professions of faith. But you know what, Sam? Almost all of them will be living together. I was a little surprised. My wife and I counseled maybe a dozen couples. Every single couple was living together and when my wife and I talked to them about this, you know, we're doing premarital counseling, but it sort of surfaced, you know. Everyone was affronted and offended that, that, that Scripture would say you shouldn't have sex before marriage. Every one of them. What happened in those 40 years? Did scholars discover new books of the Bible? First and second Jezebel. The romance of Samson and Delilah. <laughs> no. The world crept into their thinking. They, it, nothing else made sense. Just like my sister was a liar, nothing else made sense. But she wasn't a liar. It was a counterfeit. I was wrong. I had to repent for that. Nothing made sense to these couples. They said, well, we're saving money while we're going to grad school. And, you know, this gives us a chance to know what we're like. So we're going to be able to make a better commitment when we get married. They just rejected what scripture said because the world had convinced them this sort of an overwhelming bombardment of media around them. 
But I, want, I hate to use the example of sex before marriage because that's what we all think the world is. When I, when, when I talk to people, they'll say, yeah, the world, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. But that's the flesh. That's the flesh. It wasn't the flesh that got them to change. They, they would have been tempted 40 years ago too. What the world is, is the change in our thinking. That, and it was insidious. It was hidden. It was camouflage. That is the world. We, we Christians tend to think the world is the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But we have an answer for that. We have an enemy. That's the flesh. And Satan's in there. And the world's in there. Because they all work together, you know. But mainly the change in thinking was what happened to them. The world was a power that approved to them and even encouraged them that this is the smartest course. This is the tip and technique you need for a perfect marriage. Even though survey after survey says the most stable marriages are ones that didn't live together in advance. Because the world is not just answers, it's a system of answers. You know, it's not just Satan saying to Eve, if you eat this apple or whatever it was, you shall be like God. That's a lie and a temptation. But the world is a system of answers where you have so much data, nothing else makes sense. Listen to Psalm 115. This is, this is God talking to his people. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Now, notice the word the nations is a, is a synonym for what? The world. Why should the world say, where is your God? God says, because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants. But their gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have eyes that do not see, ears that do not speak, ears that do not hear, sorry, nose that do not smell, hands that do not feel, feet that do not walk. They cannot make a sound in their mouth. Those who make them become like them, and those who trust in them become like them. Now, look at this system. The idols are silver and gold. They're gorgeous. They're attractive. They're powerful. They have eyes, ears, nose, mouths, hands, feet. And we just, that's the complete package. And there's an overwhelming of our senses where we say, of course, that's the God we want to worship. And it makes us believers who worship an invisible God feel kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it make more sense to worship that gold and silver God where you can see his eyes, ears, and hands and feet? The world makes it look so real by, by so many different factors. It's a complete package. But what happens is an entire culture gets infected. I mean, think of... The Crusades. You know, how many of us today would say we should evangelize the world by the sword? Let's just go kill them. I mean, wouldn't we say, no, people have to give their heart willingly, wouldn't we? I mean, it just, to us, we look back at that and it says, that's so stupid. My question is, what would they say if they looked at us? What would they say? Oh my gosh, that's so stupid. Like, have we reached the pinnacle of all wisdom? I doubt it. We're blinded by something else. I can't tell you what it is always because we're blinded. But we want to know. Or American slavery, I hate to bring this up. I mean, there was a culture among Christians 
in areas that thought this was right and good. And it's the biggest blot in, a, in our country's, this biggest shame. It's abominable. It's an abomination. I think they might be able to look at us and say, you know what? You're right. Because now that they're in, you know, the Christians who believe that, who, I don't know what to say. I'm just saying that those people could look at us and they would see how the world's affected us. We have to be very careful. These are not little things in our lives. These are ser- very, very serious things. The world is a system of counterfeit answers, but here's the key is they are independent of God. They're independent. In other words, they're not necessarily saying God is evil, bad, wrong. They're not in open rebellion of God. They're just answers that don't need God. Listen, to, listen again to the heart of God when he says in Jeremiah 2, he says, God is being redundant here, but listen to the shock God wants us to experience. God says, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And second, they have carved out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, because it's all counterfeit, that can't contain water. God says, I'm the fountain of water. Remember when God, Jesus is talking to the women at the well? Out of you will flow rivers of water. Jesus is the, but it's sort of more hidden. God says, are you willing to wait for me to reveal it? Will you believe in the unseen? And you know, we don't want to. We like believing in the seen. The world systems don't necessarily deny God. They just ignore God, mostly. And so it doesn't feel so bad to us. If they literally denied God, we'd be less likely to follow them. They just rely on their own homegrown tips and techniques and horses and chariots and let's go for make an alliance with Egypt because he'll save us from Babylon. This is the world and, and it's hard to battle. In our culture, it's a common thing. In, our, in a culture outside the church, people will say, look it, it's great that you go to the Bible, you go to religion for spiritual issues. But if you want to go for emotional issues, you go to psychology. And look it, my wife and I have had counseling together. My wife is a counselor. I'm not saying counseling is wrong. These are horses and chariots. God, God didn't tell David to get rid of horses and chariots, did he? He said, don't trust them, which is hard. But I do want to encourage us to be careful of, our, of the counselors we choose. You know, Sigmund Freud, who was, say, the father of modern counseling, I'm not sure. I think it's a reasonable comment. He was a devout, if you can say that, a devout atheist, but he wanted counseling. He wanted to counsel people. And back then, the only people who counseled were pastors. So you know what he called counselors? You know what his term was? secular counselors, because he wants to counsel, but just no God. He wants answers for our emotional issues, but no God. He says, fine, if you have spiritual issues, go read the Bible, but if you want to deal with your heart, you know, your anger, your bitterness, your depression, then just come to me, and we don't need God for that. Well, that's, I was going to cuss, but it's really bad, okay? <laughs> then Pastor Michael would drag me off the pulpit. I had a friend who went to a 
church growth seminar, because my friend was into church planting, he was into church growth. He went to a church growth seminar, and he said, Sam, they had very, very good wisdom. They had great wisdom about how dark to make the, congreg- how dark to make the sanctuary, because Newer people like it a little bit darker sometimes so they can slip in a little bit. They had wisdom about how many seats you should have. They, had wisdom. they literally had wisdom about the wardrobe the person should wear. I'm not following it. Um, actually, I don't know what it was. Um, it was a two and a, day, two and a half day conference with tips and techniques and wisdom and smarts. And my friend said there was not one session, either large or small, about prayer. So go grow your church, but you don't need to pray. Does that sound right? But that's because the world has crept into the church. Because we start seeing what we need is tips and techniques and that'll solve all our problems. Even growing the church is just tips and techniques. You know, I'll tell you one other story. My father, who all his churches to start with were about 200 people. Back then that was sort of a common size, 200 or 250 people. Then he moved to Lancaster after I left home, maybe I was the key. He had a church that had 250 people, and by the time he retired 10 years later, it had grown from 200 to 800, and they had planted four churches that were 200 each. And you know what he said to me about a year before he died? In fact, he was, he was diagnosed with cancer. He was dying. He said, Sam, in my first churches, if anybody asked me, and my friends would ask me, is your church growing? He said, I would tell every one of them, you know, they are. I, I, they're, growing, they're reading scripture more. They're praying more regularly. I think they're growing in love towards their spouses. I think they're growing. He said, you know what happened to me after my church grew in numbers from 200 to 700 or 800? If someone said to me, is your church growing? I'd say, yeah, it used to be 200. Now it's 300. And he said, that's an abomination. He said, it was right. In fact, this is very much like Wilkerson, who said, let God, how's the phrase again? Help me out, Pastor Michael all of me, as opposed to trying to evangelize all the world. Because when, when God has get taken over all of me, when I've given all of me, we will speak to the world. That's what my father said. It was wrong for him to start counting the seats. The world infects us. But the world is, in essence, here's the way I want to describe it. The world, in essence, is the kingdom without the king. We want all the things of the kingdom. We want happiness. We want peace. We want success. We want a good marriage. We want good children. We want children to follow the Lord. We want friends. We want maybe not too much money, but enough money. These are the kingdom things, and we want all the kingdom, but we want it on our terms. We don't want the king. And God says, you can't have it that way. The essence of the world is the kingdom without the king. and the world is compellingly alluring. The world is a system of counterfeit answers, independent of God, and compellingly, magnetically attractive. It's an addictive, magnetic, gravitational force that sucks us in. Israel had been managed, ruled, by judges for several years after they, several hundred years after they had left Egypt. And after Samuel was getting old and he was going to die, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We're, we don't like this old system. We want a king. And Samuel says, look it. 
if you get a king, they're going to take your best sons and your, your strongest sons and they're going to make them soldiers and send them out to battle. They're going to take your best daughters and just make them servants of the king and his kingdom. They're going to take your best crops. They're going to take your best herds. They're going to take your best money. These kings are going to take all this from you. And you know what the people say in response to Samuel? They say, no, we must have a king over us. Why? Then we will be like all the other nations. Look at what's happened to these people. The nations just look so cool. I just want to be like them. There's something about it in our hearts. You know, I know a pastor uh, that I've been following for years, and I think he started well, but about 10 years ago, he said, we're not going to ever preach from the Old Testament again because that won't speak to people. And then he said, we're not going to preach from Paul because, like, Paul is so harsh. You know, we're just going to speak from Jesus. And then he says, well... And we're not going to say everything that Jesus said, because sometimes he talks about hell. He's saying, I'm going to talk about the kingdom without the king. You know, the ki- My life is richer for understanding Gideon. My life is richer for understanding crossing of the Red Sea. My life is richer. And who am I to decide what people need to hear? God is the one that created scripture. But the world creeps in, and I say, oh, I want to be, be liked by the world, so I'm not going to preach that bad story in the Old Testament. The world is so compelling, it's so alluring, it's so addictive. In Jeremiah, God is reaching out to his people saying, quit, quit chasing foreigners. And he says, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. He says, remember, I fed you, I watered you, I protected you. And the people say, it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners. That's another word for the world. And after them, I will go. It's sort of like the world, we're just saying, I give up, God, I'm just gonna follow the world. Now, as a believer, we might be tempted to sin, but some of these sins are reprehensible. I mean, well, they all are, but some of them feel reprehensible. But the thing with the world is the world doesn't usually seem reprehensible. The world is what I call pretty worldliness. The world is compelling. Listen to John Lennon's, one of his most famous songs. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell beneath us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, I sing that every time the Olympics come out, right? I hear it on the radio. I'll bet if the worship team played here, everybody here could sing it. Everybody would know it. You you wouldn't even need the words up. But what are we saying? You know, imagine there's no heaven. There's been one culture that was tested that didn't believe in heaven. The Roman Empire did not believe in a heaven. And you know what happened when the plagues came? All the rich and all the doctors left Rome. And you know who stayed? It was the people who believed in heaven. It was the Christians. They stayed and ministered and cared for the sick and dying. That's the kingdom with the king, right? But we sing songs because it just sounds winsome. It just sounds so nice. Boy, wouldn't the world be better if we just didn't have all this religious stuff? And who would ever tell your kid, you know, live for today and not for tomorrow? I mean, I obviously am living for today too often. But, you know, you, if you're dieting, you live for the fact that you're going to lose weight in the future. No one in, their, no one in their right mind would say live for today only. Imagine all the people living for today. It's just total lies but it sure sounds sweet, doesn't it? It sounds compelling. 
Tom Brady. The reason I mention him is he was a quarterback at University of Michigan. And then he retired, then he unretired, then he retired, then he unretired, then he retired, and then he unretired. And just before his last unretirement, his, his wife was interviewed, and she was so mad that he was unretiring. And she was saying, you know, we just want him at home. We don't want him to get injured. We want to spend more time with him. But then she closed with this phrase. She says, but he has to follow his joy. Now, that sounds kind of pretty, doesn't it? Let's just follow our joy. But God says, lay down your life. God has a better plan. It just doesn't always sound so pretty. But it's better and it's true and it's life-giving. So the world is a system of answers, independent of God, alluringly attractive, but it's a system of answers to the deepest questions of life. It's not just saying, here's the best way to change your spark plugs. It's to the deep questions of life. For years, I owned a software company with two partners, and I had an employee who was a good employee, but he bragged a lot. He bragged about what a great father he was. He bragged about what a great husband he was. He bragged about his participation in, ch in his church. He came home from a business trip once visiting a client, and he, he walked into my office and he said, Sam, I stunned them silent with my brilliance. A direct quote, because, you know, that kind of stuff sticks in your mind. I stunned him, them silence with my brilliance. Now, the problem is, is the day before, after he had left the client, the client called me and said, Sam, never send that guy here again. They said, he didn't listen to a word we said. He didn't know what our issues were. And their quote was, we are in a hurricane in the Caribbean, and he was trying to teach us to surf off Malibu. Well, I got to know this man more, and what I found out was he had been an unwanted child, and his parents reminded him frequently his whole life that he had been unwanted. They had sacrificed, but they didn't really want him. It was a surprise, a sort of bad surprise. And so what does he do? He, 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 he constantly clawed for value, for affirmation, for a name. I mean, it's very understandable. We can understand that, right? But what was he doing? He was looking for salvation. Salvation from feeling empty. Salvation from feeling emptiness. Salvation from feeling worthlessness. Salvation from feeling discarded. Salvation from feeling unwanted. He was looking for salvation. But he was really looking for a king without the kingdom because he was looking for this without God. Because the world is a system of answers to our deepest questions of life, but answers that are independent of God, although they're alluringly compelling, but they promise salvation. They don't just promise the best way to change spark plugs. They, the world, promises salvation. All the world's answers promise salvation to our deepest, greatest, heartfelt longings. We all have something that we desperately want, we long for, we pray for, we cry out for, we want. And the world says, I have a salvation for you. I have the way for happiness. 
I know you want a happy marriage. I have the solution for you. Look at her. I have the solution for you. I know you want to raise your kids. I have the solution. I know you want to succeed in your career. I have the best way for it. I have a solution. That's what the world offers. Solutions. Because the world is partly, mostly, largely, a kingdom without a king. It offers the kingdom, but it says you don't need a king. But it's also salvation without a savior. This is what the world, this is why the understanding the world and recognizing the world is so important for us. Because the world is saying, I have a salvation and a ki kingdom and you don't need a God. It offers it even though it's a little insidious. And the greatest battlefield of all of our spiritual warfares, be it Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's always in our greatest longings. When we really long something, what Satan does, what the flesh does, and especially what the world does, is it offers a shortcut. And it offers a shortcut that just makes sense. What did Abraham and I, what did Abraham and Sarah most want? What was the deepest desire of their heart? A child. In that culture, it didn't matter how much money you had. It mattered how many children you had. And they wanted a child so badly, so desperately. And the world offered a solution, didn't it? Ishmael. It was a tip and a technique of the world. So you don't want, let's not wait for that invisible God anymore. Solomon had inherited this great kingdom from David. And Solomon wanted political stability. I mean, it's a good thing for a king to want. But he abandoned his wisdom that he had at first. And in those days, the way you got to political stability is you made alliances with other countries by marrying their daughters. So, you know, the, son of their, the daughter of their king becomes your wife. And so, you know, how can you ever go to battle with them? So Solomon bought the wisdom of the world. He rejected God. God said to the kings, don't marry their daughters. God commanded that in Deuteronomy. And he rejected that for the tips and techniques of the world. And look what happened to Solomon at the end of his days. He's worshiping at idolatrous high places with his wives. We want our desires to be granted. We really do want our desires to be granted. And sometimes maybe the hardest thing God ever asks is to wait for him. But if he's the king and if he's the salvation, isn't he worth waiting for? You know, he died on the cross waiting for us, didn't he? And we didn't come to his rescue, but he came to our rescue. This is the king that will never let us down. This is the savior that will always pursue us, lovingly, caringly. Worship team can come forward. I just want to ask a question. Where is our salvation? Where is your salvation? Where is my salvation? Where? Where is our salvation? Very often we look for salvation when we're in trouble. And John, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote a song called These Inward Trials, a hymn, a poem. And at the beginning he says, I ask God to give me grace and faith and hope and love and grow in these things. And he says, and God sent me into storms and into deserts and into thirst and into hunger. What was that about God? This is, you know, the beginning stanzas of this psalm. And the closing stanza is God's answer, God's answer to John Newton. And listen to this. So you're asking God, why am I in this trouble? And God says to John Newton, 
these inward trials I employ from pride and self to set you free, to break, to break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. God says the thing we need most is him. I mean, oh, we've heard this, but we forget it. The thing we need most, and sometimes God has to break my scheme of earthly joy because it's a counterfeit and it's independent of God. God has to break my schemes and he has to break your schemes. He has to break our schemes of earthly joy. The problem is I don't always see my schemes of earthly joy. Partly God has to just break it because I don't see it. But partly I think God has a prayer for us. Psalm 35 is a Psalm of David. And David is saying, I have enemies, God, and I don't know how to deal with it. You know, I don't have that many horses and chariots. I don't have an army to run, march around Jericho. And, and, and David says, contend, O Lord, with those who can contend against me. Fight those who fight me. And then I think he comes to the crux. He says, Father, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Not I bring you salvation, not I point to salvation. Not if you pray to me, I'll give you that. It's say to my soul that you, Lord, alone are our salvation. When we can pray this, say to my soul, O Lord, I am your salvation, God reveals his heart to us. He reveals his life to us. He is salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I cling to so many horses and chariots and tips and techniques. We all do. And, Father, the answers of the world are compelling. I want them. They appeal to my flesh. Father, will you please say to our soul, I am your salvation. Would you please say to us now, please say to us, I am your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be down front here and I'm asking the prayer team to come forward. And if you want a prayer as we sing this last song, if you just want someone to pray over you as you say, Lord, speak to me in my difficulty. Lord, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Come forward and we will pray with you. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.